0: As Rath Hashem, we're going to continue discussing the Gemara of Shabbos. We are on Da 46A, Mem Vav Amud Aleph. In the previous DAF, we've been delving deep into the discussion between Rebbe Shimon's opinion about whether or not there's Muktzah, whether the prohibition of something that's set aside, that you can't move it, can't touch it, can't use it, whether that exists or not, according to Rebbe Shimon in the Gemara, and various other proofs trying to determine if there are exceptions to Rabbi Shimon's opinion that there is not a prohibition against muks in general. We finished off discussing a certain type of candelabrum that had fallen onto uh, one of the rabbi's uh, uh, cloaks and he didn't want to move it. So a couple of lines down on the top of daf, a uh, memvav of Aleph says, my chulios, the Gemara replies, we're talking about a candelabrum that can actually be dismantled. So what's the meaning of this word chulios, joints? It's similar to joints that have grooves in it, and it appears as if it's made of different components. So therefore the Gemara is going to sum, summary, sum, summarize this, and it says regarding this kind of menorah that's made of actual joints, even one that's large and one that's small, it's also to move it, it's prohibited to move it. So in addition, a large menorah that has grooves everyone is going to agree that it's prohibited to move it according to the Rabbanon, according to rabbinic law. Which, in this decree, this gazera was issued because of a large candelabra made of joints. And so, by way of explanation, because it's common for this kind of a large large menorah to be made of different parts and joints, so if somebody sees a person carrying this large, grooved menorah, he might uh, assume mistakenly that it had joints, because... It looks similar. And then he would mistakenly permit carrying a large candelabrum that was actually composed of joints. The Gemara continues. So where they disagree, where Rabbi Yochanan and Rish Lakish disagree, is in the case of a small menorah that has grooves. So one Chacham, Rabbi Yochanan says, that we issue a decree that prohibits moving even a small grooved menorah because we worry about a large one. And the other chacham, Reish Lakish, says that we don't issue this decree. And the reason is because a small candelabrum is not typically made of joints, and so therefore everybody is going to know that these grooves are just decorative grooves. They're not actual grooves that that are comprised of different components. The Gemara makes a question here and says, Did Rabbi Yochanan actually say that the halacha is in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda? Didn't Rabbi Yochanan say the following, that the halacha is in accordance with an unattributed mishnah? Meaning that when you have a Mishnah and you don't have anybody where it says this is the opinion of so-and-so, we, the Rabbi Yochanan says we always follow, the Halacha always follows the person that's, un, the Mishnah that's unattributed. And we learned in a Mishnah that discusses the Tuma of the wagon that we talked about two dafs ago, that had a, this wagon had a detachable undercarriage. So this undercarriage, when it's detachable from the wagon, is not considered connected to it. And they're connected; in, they're considered like independent units as it relates to the laws of Tuma, of ritual impurity. And it's not measured along with the overall volume or the overall size of the wagon. And this, as we mentioned before, refers to calculating the volume of 40 se'ah, which is a, a, a vessel that has a volume lo- larger than 40 se'ah. It doesn't meet the legal status of a kli, and it can't become tame. It can't become ritually impure. And so here in this situation, with the un- with the with the carriage, this undercarriage doesn't protect, together with the wagon, in a tent over the corpse. A large wagon is considered to be in and of itself a tent, and any kalim vessels that are inside this wagon, they don't become impure if the wagon goes over a dead body. However, this undercarriage is not included with the wagon in this regard either. So if there's a hole in the wagon and that hole is sealed sealed up by the undercarriage itself so it's not considered to be actually sealed regarding the way to prevent Tuma and there, therefore a person cannot pull this wagon on Shabbos when there's money on it. Actually I should say likewise a person can't pull the, the, wa- the wagon on Shabbos when there's money on it. We talked about this several duffs ago. So we can infer, the Gemara says, if there's not money on it a person is permitted to move the wagon even though there was money on it during Bain Hashemashos, during twilight time. So we learned that an object that was set aside at, during Bain Hashemashos, during twilight, so that object is muksa for the entire Shabbos. So in this Mishnah, moving the wagon was permitted. So clearly, the unattributed Mishnah is actually in, the, in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Shimon, who holds that there's no prohibition of muksa. So why then didn't just a minute ago we say that Rabbi Yochanan always ruled in accordance with the unattributed Mishnah? He didn't rule like that here. Why, why doesn't he rule like the opinion of Rabbi Shimon? So Rabbi Zeir says that our Mishnah should apply only in a case in which there was no money on the wagon throughout the entire duration of this time known as Bain Hashemashos, the entire time of twilight. This is admittedly a bit of a forced interpretation. And this interpretation is accepted by the Gemara so as not to contradict and reject Rabbi Yochanan's statement. Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, So one time Rabbi went to the town of Diosfera, and he issued a ruling regarding a candelabrum, a menorah, in accordance with the, with the ruling of Rabbi Shimon that he made regarding an oil lamp. So this this is a little bit unclear. The Gemara says a dilemma was therefore raised before the Chachamim. So does this mean that he issued a ruling in the case of a menorah which was similar to the ruling of Rabbi Shimon that he made in the case of an oil lamp to permit moving it? Well, Dilma, maybe he issued a ruling in the case of the menorah to make it prohibited to move to move it, and in another case he ruled in accordance with the with that ruling of Rabbi Shimon which he made in the case of an oil lamp, which permitted it. So there really isn't any resolution found to this dilemma of what, what Rebbe Yehudanasi actually did here. And the Gemara says that this dilemma remains unresolved. So the Gemara tells that Rav Malkia happened to come to the house of Rabbi Simlai, and he moved a lamp, an oil lamp that had gone out, that had extinguished. And Rabbi Simlai became angry because his opinion was it's, it's also to move this lamp because it's Moksa. Likewise, Rabbi Yossi Aglili, he happened to come to a place of Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Chanina, and he moved this oil lamp and Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Chanina became angry. The Gemara also talks about Rabbi Yavau. When he happened to come to the place of Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, he would move the oil lamp. However, when he happened to come to the place of Rabbi Yochanan, he wouldn't. He wouldn't move it. So the Gemara uh, answers, wonders really. So whichever way you look at it, there's a problem here. So if he holds in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda, so he should act in accordance with that opinion everywhere. And he should therefore refrain from moving this lamp because he would then hold that it its muksa. And if he holds with the, in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Shimon, so then he should act in accordance with that opinion everywhere. And he should be able to move the lamp because in Rabbi Shimon's opinion it wouldn't be muksa. So the Gemara answers, actually, you can explain that Rabbi Yabau holds in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Shimon, but in respect, out of respect to Rabbi Yochanan, he didn't act like that. So he didn't want to act contrary to Rabbi Yochanan's ruling in in his place, where he was the halakhic authority. It was a sign of respect. Rav Yehuda, regarding the moving lamps on Shabbos, Rav Yehuda says, so with regard to an extinguished oil lamp, it's mutter to move it it's permissible to move it whereas a nafta lamp it's prohibited to move it nafta was a, was a spice and the smell of nafta is very unpleasant and so this lamp is only used for lighting it's not used for any other purpose and therefore moving it would be user. raba and rav yosef both said regarding a nafta lamp it's also permitted In fact, to move it. The Gemara says that Rav Avia, he happened to come to Rava's house. And his feet were dirty with clay and he put them on the bed in front of Rava. And Rava became angry at him because he made his bed dirty. And he therefore, the Gemara says, a very interesting turn of phrase, the Gemara says he sought to torment him with questions that he couldn't answer. Rava said to him, So what's the reason that Rabba and Rav Yosef both said that with regard to a nafta lamp too, that it's permitted to move it? So Rav Avia says to him, Since it's suitable to cover a kli, a vessel with it. Rava says to him, But if that's the case, then all the pebbles in the yard can also be carried, the chaschil on Shavas, because it's suitable to cover a vessel with all those things. And Rav Avia says back to him, There's a distinction here between these two cases. So the lamp, this one, is the status of a kli applies to it. And so therefore there are kulas, there are leniencies that apply to vessels with regards to the halachas of muksa. But there, the pebbles, the status of the vessel, a kli doesn't apply to them because they're raw materials. They're not a, it's not an actual vessel. So carrying them is usr, unless they're designated for a specific purpose before Shabbos. And he continues, was it not taught in a b'risa, as we flip over to dafmem vav amud beis, 46b, wasn't it taught in a price that, that bracelets and nose rings and rings, even though all of them it's preferred to go out into the public domain wearing them on Shabbos, so they're all like Kalim in the sense that they can be moved in the Chatzar, in the courtyard. However, in the private domain, you can also move them and they're not muksa And Ula said, so what's the reason that it's permitted to move nose rings in the courtyard? It's because the status of a Kli applies to it. So apparently the status of a Kli is sufficient reason to permit moving something on Shabbos. Rav Nachman bar Yitzchak said, Thank God that Rav did not embarrass Rav Avya, and that Rav Avya managed to successfully answer Rav's questions. Interesting little back and forth between Rav and Rav Avya. Abayi raises a contradiction before Rav he cites two sources with regard to muxa on Shabbos. So the first one, he says, is taught in a brisa. With regard to the remaining oil that's in an oil lamp and inside of a bowl in which there was a wick that was, on, that was lit, it's, also, it's prohibited to use it on Shabbos, but Rabbi Shimon permits using it. So apparently Rabbi Shimon is not of the opinion that there is a, a isra mukzah, which we learned. And as the contradiction is raised from a different source, in which the Chachomim discussed the halacha of a of a, b'chor, a firstborn of a kosher animal that developed a blemish on a, on a yontif. So this b'chor has to be ex, uh, examined to determine whether or not that type of blemish disqualifies the animal from being sacrificed on the Mizbeach as an offering. If it's disqualified, so it can be redeemed and then shechted and eaten as chulen, as non-sacred meat on, on the yontif. Uh, so the Gemara says that Rabbi Shimon says any firstborn animal whose blemish is not perceptible before Yom is not among the animals prepared prior to Yom for use on Yom and it's therefore iser, it's it's aser to shecht it. You can't kill, you can't slaughter it. So apparently, something that's not prepared in advance has muksa status, even according to Rabbi Shimon. So Rabbi says to him, how do you, can you compare those two cases? So there, regarding the case of the lamp, a person sits and he can anticipate when the candle is going to be extinguished. He knows in his mind that looking at this candle, it's going to be extinguished. And he can assume that there's going to be a certain amount of oil that's going to be left in the lamp or in the bowl, whatever the case may be. So here, does a person actually sit and anticipate whether a blemish is going to happen to an animal? The owner of the animal says, who says that a blemish is going to come onto this animal? You, even if you say that a blemish does, will happen to it, who says that it's going to be a permanent blemish? And that would enable it to be shechted. And then, even if you say that a permanent blemish is going to happen to it, who says that a Chachemulah is going to agree to engage, to examine this blemish? There's so many different uncertainties here. So if the blemish is not perceptible before Yantif, we can't see it before Yantif, the possibility of this Bechor becoming available doesn't really enter a person's thoughts any, at all. Rami Barchama raises an objection to this last point from that which we learned in a Mishnah. We learned that one can nullify vows on Shabbos. So for example, a woman who vows that a certain food is going to be prohibited to her, so the husband can nullify the vow on Shabbos. Likewise, a person can request that a chacham, find, a sage, find an opening, to dissolve, a way to dissolve the vow. Meaning a factor that a person taking the vow failed to take into account, or maybe there's some element of regret. So, if that nullification or dissolution is for the purpose of Shabbos, then a person can uh, ask a, a sage to disqualify that vow. So, the question is: So, why, after a person, uh, after a, a man has nullified his wife's vow, so she should be, why she should she be able to eat that food? Because when the woman vowed not to eat that food, she intended to set it aside in her mind. So even if if some people say that to dissolve the vow, that a way is found to dissolve and break this vow, that food should still be muksa. On the basis of the same uncertainty that was raised earlier, we should say the Gemara says. So who says that her husband's going to agree to engage in nullifying this oath? Perhaps he's going to refuse to do this. So there would be this chain of uncertainties here. The Gemara gives an answer, and it says there, regarding vows, it can be explained in accordance with that which Rav Pinchas said in the name of Rava. It came to explain some of the fundamentals of the halachas of Nidarim of vows. As Rav Pinchas said in the name of Rava, every woman who takes a vow, it's always contingent on the husband's consent that she takes this vow. She knows in advance that her husband has the ability to nullify this vow, And so therefore, her vows are never considered to be absolute and finite, and only they're validated, it only comes about when the husband agrees to validate that vow. So when a woman makes a vow, she doesn't set aside the food absolutely, and therefore it's not muksa. So moreover, the Gemara brings another proof, tashma coming here. A person can request that a sage to dissolve his vow for the purpose of Shabbos, on Shabbos, meaning a person who vowed on Shabbos, that eating on that day is prohibited for him. He can ask for that vow to be nullified or dissolved. So why is he permitted to eat something that was prohibited to him by this vow? So you should also say, who says that this Chacham is going to agree to engage in this dissolution? Again, you could have a potential chain of uncertainty here. So consequently, you have... Certainly di- diverted your attention from this food. You've set it aside. You've s- you've made it muksa because you put a vow on it, and you don't know what's going to happen if this guy's going to come along and he's going to agree to this dissolution and all of these chain of events. This coulda, woulda, shoulda, and so therefore it should be uh, prohibited to eat this because it's muksa. The Gemara says, nevertheless, there is a difference because there regarding the halachas of vows. Even if the sage, the Chacham, does not agree to engage in the dissolution of this vow, a person can suffice by renouncing the vow before three regular people. So it's preferable to have a Chacham dissolve this vow. However, in a Shashachach, in an exigent circumstance, a person can go can get a, three people together, make a little bastin, and he can dissolve that vow. So he can find a way, certainly there's a way to always dissolve the vow. However, here, regarding the case of a bachor, so who says that there's going to be a chacham that's going to engage in examining this blemish? So in the halachas of firstborn animals, only an actual chacham with smicha, who has a special ability, special approval to do so, is, is authorized to verify that a certain blemish is permanent or not, and can permit redemption in the, in the shechting of an animal so that it can become a non-sacred chulin animal. There's a difference there. So Abaye raises a contradiction before Rav Yosef. Did Ribishiman actually say that when a lamp is extinguished that it's permitted to move it on Shabbos? So we can infer after it's extinguished, sure, yes, you can move it. As long as it's not extinguished, no, you can't move it. My time, what's the reason that it's prohibited to move a burning candle? So the reason the Gemara gives is that it's due to concern that maybe... As as he's moving the lamp, the flame is going to become extinguished. However, is Rabbi Shimon really concerned about this flame being extinguished in these circumstances? The Gemara says, didn't we learn that Rabbi Shimon stated a principle that is an unintentional act, meaning something that's permitted, from which an unintended istir comes about on Shabbos, since he didn't intend to perform the prohibited action? That's this this unintentional act is permitted. It was also taught in a price that Rebbe Shimon says a person can drag a bed, a chair, and a bench on the ground as long as he doesn't intend to make a, a, dig a hole, make a furrow inside the ground. So even if this ditch is, in, is formed by accident, you don't have to worry about it because it wasn't his intention to do it. So there's no prohibition, according to Rebbe Shimon. So consequently, though, according to Rabbi Shimon, there should be no prohibition regarding moving a burning candle. Because even though it may be extinguished, it wasn't the person. The person didn't intend to move the candle so that it could ex- be extinguished, and therefore no malacha, no of Shabbos, no, no prohibition of Shabbos was violated. So the Gemara says it gives an answer and says actually there is a distinction between the two cases. In every case where if a person intends to perform an action so that there is a prohibition, a sura deraisa, prohibition by Torah law. In this case, extinguishing a candle, which is a, a Torah prohibition, even when a person doesn't intend to do so, Rabbi Shimon is to issue a gazerah prohibiting it, derabanan, by rabbinic law. However, every case where even if a person intends to perform an action, so there's merely a prohibition of derabanan of rabbinic law. For example, in the case of digging this furrow. This hole, which is not a full-fledged act of plowing, that would be prohibited Isa, but it's prohibited only derabonen by by the rabbi. So when he doesn't intend to perform that action, so Rabbi Shimon even permits him doing this lachaschil initially. So Rava raises an objection to this kind of a distinction, because we learned in the Mishnah. Mochri Jesus, clothing merchants who sell garments, they sell um, garments of different kinds of material. They sell uh, a prohibition of shotness, which is the mixture of wool and linen. So the Rav said, the Mishnah says that clothing merchants can sell them as they normally would to Goyim, to non-Jews. A merchant can place the garments that he's selling on his shoulders, and he doesn't have to worry about the prohibition against wearing these kinds of things, as long as he doesn't intend to benefit from these garments in the sun as protection from the sun, or in the rain as protection from the rain. So he's not trying to use these shatna's garments to help him, to shield him as a shade or as an umbrella. However, the Gemara says, the modest people, meaning those who are particularly scrupulous in the performance of the mitzvah, they would suspend the wool and linen garments on a stick behind them. They wouldn't even carry it. So here, isn't it a case where if a person intends to wear the clothes, so there's an isidera there's a prohibition of Torah law, and even so, when a person does not intend to wear it, Rabbi Shimon prohib- uh, permits it l'chashchila. So by this, it's apparent that Rabbi Shimon doesn't distinguish between the cases on that basis. However, Ella Amar Rava, says, a different explanation regarding Rabbi Shimon's prohibition in the case of an oil lamp. And we flip over to Zion Amanala 47a. Rava says, Leave the candle, the oil, and the wick. Since they become a basis, a basis for a prohibited object, and that principle in Hebrew is called a basis le ha a basis for a prohibited object. So in that case, even Rabbi Shimon would agree that a flame that's burning on Shabbos is muksa, and because it's prohibited to move the flame, so therefore moving the oil lamp, the oil and the wick would also then be prohibited because the basis, the basis. Is that we all agree that you can't, that the flame is muksa, and, and we all agree that in that situation you can't move the flame. So if you can't move the flame, you can't move what it's attached to. Now we're going to get into more of this, as Hashem, a more of a discussion of this principle of a basisla de varha asur, a basis for a, a prohibited object, uh, and a discussion between Rabbi Zaver and Rabbi Asi on the next daf, Be'ez Hashem.